0: Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast and this week I've got my guest here who's spent the last 25 years supporting employers in upgrading their flexible working practices. Now some may say she was ahead of her time because she launched her book just before the pandemic when people were really struggling to even consider some of the themes that she's been talking about but certainly the changes that have taken place um, over the last two three years I think have helped people to understand uh, flexible working is absolutely something that many of us need, not just women actually, which I think originally is how it started out. And her book's called Upcycle Your Job, The Smart Way to Balance Family Life and Career. So Anna, I'm really delighted you've come to join us today that we're going to talk about sustainable working, flexible working, and all from how HR can really help people to be productive but also have a whole well-balanced family lifetime as well.
1: Thank you, Lucinda. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It it's, it's certainly is something that I think is incredibly important. Flexible working, and um, one of the interesting things for me is, I think as we've gone through the recent, you know, strange three years we've gone through, is actually the ability for people to know how to be productive as in have a whole life and not just think about work and home separately. It feels like that's been something that's important for people's well-being, whether they're male or female. That's my personal view. But just before we go into how this thinks to HR, what got you into this area?
1: Right, well, that is um, quite a long story actually, Lucinda. Um, back in the 1990s, I was working in mainstream HR roles and quite high pressure roles in the financial services sector. And um, uh, I had a life event. I met the man who um, I eventually married and then subsequently divorced. But that's another story. And um, I began thinking about how I could possibly combine work with a family life. And at that point, I came across an organisation which was then called the Working Mothers Association. It's um, subsequently changed its name several times. It's still around as a charity campaigning for um, better support for working mothers. And at that time, their main focus was on childcare. Of course, the irony being that we're now coming full circle on that. But my passion there was to say, well, we need a lot more flexibility around work if we're gonna support women. And this was, as I say, the beginning of the 1990s when there was less flexible working available. At that time, we used to call it family friendly. And eventually we moved to this concept of work-life balance. Everybody should be able to integrate work with home. And in the meantime, I'd been campaigning with the charity for quite a long time um, to offer better flexible working. I got involved with a working group from the British Psychological Society. I was invited to join because of that work I was doing to look at the kind of academic evidence around work-life balance and why it's important um, to individuals, but also why organisations should be taking um, notice of it. So um, it was at that point, really, that I began to realise that, gosh, I'm I'm developing so much knowledge in all of this area, I guess I could call myself an expert. So here I am, 25 years on, um, with all that experience under my belt, still trying to push organisations and individuals to um, improve their work-life balance, to improve the flexible working provisions that they offer, um, so that everybody can be more productive and also lead a a much more satisfying life. And you said that, yeah, you're involved in this, and I know that your book's got quite a lot
0: of um, academic aspects to it. Mm. What was it that... Yeah, what can you give us a few highlights as to, if, as if we need convincing, but as to what the evidence is around um, getting something like this right? What's in it for an organisation and for the individual?
1: Right, yes, thank you for that, Lucinda. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote my book was because I wanted to dispel a lot of the myths around what work-life balance is. It's an incredibly popular topic for people to talk about, and there's an awful lot of people talk about it from their own opinion. And so for one example, um, a lot of the debate is around, well, should we call it work-life balance or should it be integration, should it be blend, etc.? And there's an awful lot of evidence that... um, uh, When it comes to work-life balance, most people are, or um, 50-50, people are either integrators or separators, but a lot of people still have a preference to separate their work from the rest of their lives, and that's becoming increasingly difficult as we uh, move through the years. And even those people who are integrators who say, well, I don't mind, I, I will integrate the two, they run the risk of multitasking they run the risk which has been shown as to be um, not productive they run the risk of not ever being present anywhere because you're with your family and your focus is on your work or vice versa and they run the risk of burnout so in my book one of the things i look at particularly for um, individuals is how they manage those boundaries even if they set what are called micro boundaries in a world that um, the uh, there's an academic who wrote the foreword to my book, Ellen uh, Ernst Kossek, who is a professor in the US, and she terms it boundarylessness. We are all now faced with boundarylessness, where everything creeps into everything else, and we never get the time to disconnect from work to refresh ourselves. So, it's in the book I encourage people to think about how they can set some of those boundaries. And for organisations, the key implication of allowing more flexibility is something that's on the horizon anyway. We need to begin, HR needs to begin seriously thinking about how we are going to redesign jobs. Because not only do we need to redesign jobs for the flexibility that people need, but we also are faced with creeping AI, artificial intelligence, which is going to take over parts of some jobs or remove jobs altogether. So HR needs to begin thinking about how do we redesign jobs to make the best use of the human element, which not only um, increases their productivity, but also enables them to lead a more balanced life mm so,
0: I just don't type because you came up with some terms there that were new to me and might be new to yeah. listeners, so although quite come so. I'm I just thinking, I don't know whether which I am. So, you've got integrator <laughs> versus segment. So, comp- is it segmental or compartmental
1: or separator? It doesn't really matter. Yeah. So, uh, so if you
0: compartmentalize
1: or s- integrate,
0: and I was thinking yeah. during the pandemic, lots of people were forced to integrate with homeschooling, and things like that. they didn't really, they which were. wouldn't necessarily be their choice, but you were yeah. kind of forced to. Um, and I think, see, there's pros and cons of all of these things. You can also see where boundary things seep in where personal social media might interrupt you in your and you're working and concentrating this whole, like you say, this boundarylessness that can affect our um, effectiveness. What's, um, what's What would be an example of a micro boundary, just from a personal right. point of
1: view? Um, yeah, again, in, in my book, I uh, came across an academic at, I think, UCL, who um, recommends what's called micro boundaries, which is, you know, if you can't totally separate Switch your your work phone off for the hour that you're having dinner with your family or assign half a day at the weekend when you're going to focus just on non-work things. So it's little boundaries that give you a chance to break away from this constant blurring of everything blurring into everything else but it's not the big oh right okay I've left work now it's six seven o'clock or whatever I'm not going to look at work things till the morning which many people would find too challenging so it's just setting small boundaries that can still be helpful. And that's
0: that's really about I can see how this really overlaps into well-being, because mm-hmm. um, otherwise, if you're always on work, then you then you can't ever properly recharge or let go of it. Can you So that sort of yeah. but but to in order to set your micro boundaries, you've almost got to make those habits, I think. Otherwise, if you're quite yeah. stressed at work and everything's going on, you don't necessarily feel able to gent- set those boundaries up.
1: Well, yeah, I guess that that this comes back to what you're saying about well-being and unsurprisingly, Mm. um, the the well-being literature and the work-life balance literature does tend to kind of bleed into itself and each other because, um, as you were saying, you know, people... um, are constantly working. Um, The psychologists have this thing called conservation of resources, that we have finite resources. We can only use them for a certain amount of time. Then we need to replenish them. And particularly for those who have home responsibilities, the challenge is that many of those resources are the same resources Mm -hmm. that you're using at home and at work. Um, And if you never switch off from one, then you never get the time to refresh or replenish by using your resources in a different way or using different resources. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think it is difficult. And this is one of the areas where for employers, um, uh, they really have up till now, I think been letting the side down because we do talk a lot about well-being at work. We do talk a lot about stress management at work, but one of the things that employers rarely formally acknowledge is the importance of this work-life balance. So before the um, pandemic started, two academic colleagues of mine from the working group had actually carried out some award-winning research which showed that only about half of organizations offered any sort of guidance or had any sort of policy on managing the work-life interface and how their employees should do that. And, of course, on the other side of that, we have workplace cultures that are driving more and more work, more and more hours, Mm. constant contact, and employees are left to figure out for themselves, how on earth do I manage that?
0: Yeah, that's the thing, and and it takes quite a lot of personal resolve or experience or confidence or maturity and or all of those things to be able to to segment your life doesn't it especially if it's not being supported by the employer it's just uh, as as an example of bad practice in my opinion I recently did a 360 feedback with somebody who was obviously like a a PA or executive um, assistant role and one of the comments said uh, isn't always available out of hours which should be which is part of the job, and I was thinking, gosh, that is really quite a tough comment. And what, what sort of culture is that? And as it turned out, they took it quite well, and you know. But I, I mean, whereas many of us, myself included, want to have the flexibility to, let's say, pick up your child in the middle of the day and work later, which means you might be working. It's about outputs. So you're working outside of normal hours. However, I don't feel that it should be an expectation that you're available to the organisation 24-7, and it's an interesting blurring of boundaries almost. Maybe this is where HR can help us get it right.
1: Well, exactly, Um, and much of that is historical and it's embedded in corporate cultures where the um, thinking is that if you're committed to your career, your career comes first, And of course, um, that worked in the days when mostly it was men who went to work and women stayed at home with children, because there was somebody else who was addressing all those outside issues. Mm. Nowadays, that doesn't work. But the problem is that it's still perpetuated in a culture that both consciously and unconsciously um, uh, says your work should be your first priority to go to your example, if the role if that role genuinely requires out of hours contact then the manager of the post holder should be agreeing with the post holder how that operates how are we going to do that what's a genuine emergency are there any times i literally cannot get hold of you if you can't get hold of someone for an hour because they've turned their phone off for a meal is it going to be that um drastic you know most things can wait an hour so um what we need to be doing is to be thinking more about what are the, how can we support our colleagues? How can we support each other so that everybody gets some sort of balanced life rather than having this expectation that they should always be on working? Absolutely.
0: And and so it's it's just thinking more broadly. So then going with this, because it is now something that isn't just female uh, in terms of this, although it was notable during the pandemic that the females were picking up a lot of the extra work at home uh, wasn't it rather as well as the work work um
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but if we're thinking about as HR thinking about flexible working differently Mm -hmm. what's what what, and and let's say maybe we want to change the culture in our organization Mm -hmm. we're aware that people are kind of having unreasonable expectations what can we say to to motivate people to do things differently or to challenge the culture in our organization if we feel it's not quite right
1: well, I think the um, if, if it's a case of getting people to rethink that culture, then I think it's about... Why is it important to support that flexibility and to support it all the way through to senior management level? And of course, there is evidence that, you know, there are a number of key things that we know in evidence um, around flexible working. First of all, we know that it supports women's careers, and everybody from the Women's Business Council to consultants to everybody else has said that. And in most organizations, we still have a gender pay gap, we still have fewer women in top roles so there's a, a, a sound business argument for that we also know that by offering flexibility we can open up um, to a more diverse workforce because there are people who might have caring responsibilities for adults there are people who may be disabled themselves who would want more access to flexible working so um first of all it's about understanding why it benefits the organization. But secondly, I think it's about having a strategic approach, because unfortunately, in a lot of organizations, what happens is they have a policy. Yes, we have a policy on flexible working, because the government very kindly introduced legislation for that. But then it's devolved out to managers. And of course, Um, I do pity the poor managers, because some will be very open to flexible working, some will wonder how it could work in their team, some will say absolutely not, because of the way they think it should be structured. Um, It's devolved to managers. Individuals are randomly allowed or not allowed to work flexibly. And the higher up the organisation you go, the tougher it becomes. So what hr needs to do is first of all it really needs to stop saying well you know we have a policy we've devolved it to managers and really get under the radar of what is going on in your organization and part of that will be where are women stuck because there are there's a lot of evidence um that the charity i spoke about that i got involved in um when i first started this work is now part of a charity called working families which for the last few years has produced some research that says women are holding themselves back because they cannot get work-life balance, they cannot get that flexible working. So if women are stuck, if they're leaving, if um, uh, there's a general feeling that there's no point in even asking as you go to more senior levels, then HR needs to understand that and then to begin to open up conversations around why is this. And the way I often tend to do that is when I go into an organisation, I often say, because I'm usually asked to come in to improve the um, access to flexible working. I will go in and say, right, OK, first of all, can I pull all the managers together, as many as will attend in you know, various sessions? And I get them to share their experiences. I get them to share both their concerns, but also what they know about it and what is already going on. So that at the organizational level, they have all this knowledge that is hidden under the radar because individuals are doing it one way in one part of the organization or not doing it somewhere else. And I often think that if you can say to a manager who has concerns, oh, but so and so in that department is doing it, why don't you go and talk to him? And invariably the you know, managers, it's likely to be a him, that gives them more reassurance than anything that I can do. Mm. But as I say, um, because it's to be dispersed in many organisations, it does need a strategic approach, it does need someone in HR to say, "Right, well, I'm going to own this, I'm going to see what's happening now and where we can um, move forward so that we can improve it. I mean, it's an interesting one for HR in that there's
0: got to be some risk, actually, and if you think before pandemic, where everyone was forced to work remotely, um, people would have flexible working requests turned down. Almost so as not to set, set a precedent, you know. Which now I think people would think was relatively unreasonable. So it would be quite common for someone to pick a kid up and then drop them somewhere and then carry on working. You know, I'm not saying work and childcare. You've got to um, the, the the sort of boundaries have shifted or the the attitude I think has shifted. But then the problem with that is where people feel uncomfortable, and I think it does always come down to this sense that what if people abuse it how do you so so it's almost like we have to assume the lowest level of trust for everyone uh in order to uh to control it so i just think it's an interesting one if if i'm in in department x within a business and person in department y they've got flexible working and i haven't because my manager just can't get the head around it Mm. That's, that's that's unfair and i can
1: see people having issues with it It is absolutely unfair and not only is it unfair, but as as I was saying, it can lead to people stuck, Um, they're not progressing, people saying I'm going to move to another organisation which does offer me that flexibility and very often, as I say, it's not necessarily the manager who is uh, who we should point the finger of blame at, because managers themselves often have had no training or no advice on this. So the first thing we need to do is to say, right, OK, if we're going to offer flexible working, we need to start really moving cultures to evaluating outputs rather yes, than 100%. presence. Yeah. And to get people to agree within their teams what those outputs are going to be. How will I know if you're working? I will know because you have produced X, Y and Z by the end of the week, end of the month or whatever. Yeah. So let's, you know, and and let's get over that bit. And the bit about trust, I I used to think for years and years it was trust. Managers don't trust their staff. But you know what, Lucinda, over the last few, over the last couple of years, I've come to think I don't think it is about trust. I think it's about a fear of losing control. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the fact that if you're not here when the manager is here, that poor manager doesn't actually know what you're doing, whether you're doing it, whether you're going to do it to the right standard. And therefore, if somebody says, well, what's happening with that piece of work they don't know Mm -hmm. and they're worried about being exposed themselves so one of the things I think is really important in all of this is to have communication and have good communication and for that to be set up from the start so um, as I was saying the manager agrees with the team this is what the team's going to produce in this period of time that's how I will know that you're working we will also have check-ins to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing, whether they're um, stumbling in any way and um, what's happening there so that the manager feels a bit more control around what's going on. And that's not sort of controlling. I must see everything that you're doing, but leave the manager less vulnerable. And I think that is a bigger issue than the issue about trusting staff in a way. Um, and then I agree you with you. Why-
0: yes. And and, and if you, the funniest thing about it is that this, in fairness, is in the same way you were talking about flexible working three years ago and actually the last 25 years actually the skills people management skills people performance management skills in the uk workforce so lots of workforce forces are relatively weak because there's nothing we're saying here that wasn't relevant pre-pandemic we should be um you know having regular check-ins with people we should be agreeing output based goals and targets that people can therefore be empowered to achieve and, auto- and have some level of autonomy which of course then if you're a flexible work you know what's expected of you it's much easier to go out and deliver it. Yet we were very much on a sort of, if we were doing builders, time and materials type thing, as opposed to actually, this is what we want as an end goal.
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, again, this comes back to HR perhaps having a more strategic role in all of this and see and tie, joining the dots, tying it yeah. all in, working with L&D to say, well, you know, what's your uh, manager, tra- what, what is the manager training like? Um, Joining it up with yeah. um, uh, the benefits to the organisation uh, t- to move the whole thing forward. Have they got the skills? I'm interested, and in, yeah, in terms of flexible working that you're
0: seeing, there's quite bits, and I think some interim results have just come out about the four day week.
1: And, they have, I mean, yeah. Yeah. What do you? What's your view on that? Yeah. Um, well, my, my my personal view is any flexible arrangement, any body looking creativity creatively at flexibility has got to be a good thing so on the one hand yeah great and it would appear that those organizations i was looking at some news reports today and it would appear that those organizations that have been involved are saying yes it's very good it has worked very well for us and people are productive um from what i can gather it's mainly been small organizations with small numbers of people so um, i don't know how Far, We can extrapolate that to the workforce in general. But of course, the four day week is only one way that people want to work. Mm. And you were talking earlier about wanting to finish work to go and pick your kids up and then come back to work in the evening. I don't know how the four-day week works with that because yeah. not everybody wants to do that. Some people want to work. Uh, some people might just say, well, I just want to work until about 2 o'clock because my child is still quite young and I don't want to even think about working once I've picked him or her up. Some people want to work a job share for all sorts of reasons. There are all sorts of um, uh, work, flexible working arrangements that suit people at different times in their lives. Yeah. So while I think the four-day week experiment is brilliant in shining a light on flexible working i wouldn't want any employer to think right okay we're, we're offering the four-day week it's done and dusted because it will still cause some people difficulties or challenges
0: well yeah and, and let's face it it doesn't work if you're in healthcare teaching you know emergency services then the, it, and, yeah i'm not sure whether it works Oh well i suppose if you're in shifts anyway but it, it it doesn't work for every single organization a lot of these are much simpler in um knowledge workers aren't they than um you know than a, a majority of, of other workers or if you if you've got to cover provide a 24 7 customer service yeah uh, well yeah. then then it's it's trickier um as, yeah. unless it's you do four days such a longer days and I think there's some detail lacking in terms of what's coming out of this four day week it's not necessarily um totally clear as to whether people are working more hours or not in that period of, of time and how they're doing it how they're getting the job done
1: yeah the the headline I saw said um, 80% of the work for 100% of the pay, which is all well and good, but I'd also like to know how they isolated the 80% of the work. And, of course, um I, I'm not being in any way cynical about this, but we have to be a little bit careful because often people will do extra work at yeah. home in the evenings and whatever that they won't admit to, you know, probably Is there hidden work going on or are we genuinely talking 80% of the work and and does that mean that there was that 20% redundancy that I was talking about earlier which could have been addressed by artificial intelligence or automation or something like that so as you say I think we need a bit more detail on exactly what goes into um, this uh, four-day week and how it can be structured
0: Is there anything else that's new um, and different in terms of flexible working, sustainable working that um, you've come across that you think is particularly innovative or seems to be working for people? I don't know if there is. (laughs) Putting you on the spot there, Anna.
1: Well, um, other than the four day week, I haven't seen anything particularly innovative in the last couple of years, because, of course, in the last couple of years, um, we've all been thinking much more about remote working. So, of course, in a sense, what's happened is we're going backwards because... A lot of people could work remotely or what was called home working occasionally. Anyway, mm-hmm. now they're coming back into the office, and what employers are saying is, "Well, we need to we need to do this hybrid working, so you can work remotely for a couple of days, and you'll be in the office for a couple of days." So it seems like rather than being innovative, we're almost taking a backward step when it comes to flexible working, and it would appear that. If you don't want to do the hybrid arrangement, if you are looking for some flexibility and you're not in one of those organizations offering the four-day week, then it would appear that the, the actual offer for flexible working is going backwards, that there appear to be less jobs advertised with flexibility other than hybrid, as in remote working. Although, yeah. although it's
0: it's I mean, I suppose I partially see that if you've got a hybrid role. And you're based on outputs then flexibility is inferred as in I would expect that I'm flexible as to how I get the job done when I'm not in the office I suppose with the the likelihood is of coming into the office I'm going to be in there at the times that other people are there because it's about collaboration but I mean it is a different form of flexibility to a certain extent the hybrid piece isn't
1: it? it? It is and it's also this thing about um how many hours people want to work because whether you know whether it's a hybrid arrangement or even we're talking four day weeks whatever not everybody wants to work that and I'm thinking about some of the um women I've come across who've moved into more senior roles who actually wanted to work just three days or just four days for a particular period of time because they wanted to structure their lives and I'm thinking of a couple of women one was a partner in a law firm and one was um a uh, very senior pensions manager. And they both actually, interestingly enough, had children in that 9 to 11 age group where they were just growing up and beginning to think about going to secondary school not the mothers of very young children but as as any mother will recognize that's another kind of vulnerable period for children when they're going through that transition to big school and both of these women wanted to work less than full time to spend time with their children guiding them through that process of growing up and moving on to secondary school Um, and again um, whether you're working hybrid i.e. you're working at home doing that or you're working in the office doing that it's neither here nor there the point is how many hours you are working and in both those roles because they were quite senior roles it's also about when can people contact you and being open about that
0: Mm, or when you're expected to be on full-on conference calls or whatever that might be
1: yes
0: yes yes it does again it varies from person to person And certainly I completely understand that whole point that I mean in actual fact when children are very young it's almost easier to outsource the care Mm. when they're at the point where they're making decisions or not making decisions or not home from school not doing their homework or you know having challenges that's when Mm. you kind of want to have that availability because it's about you culturally being able to Mm. support your your family So, yeah. in your book, you write about three shifts that employers need to make. So, as I say, summarizing this, what would you summarize these as um, for the benefit of our
1: audience? Right, yes, thank you. Um, uh, the, there are three things that I think employers need to change in order to fully support both work life balance and to better support women's careers. And the first of those is that employers themselves need to embrace More clearly, what work life balance is and how they are going to support it because a lot of organizations say, Oh, yes, as we were saying earlier, we're interested in well being, we're interested in mental health. Oh, yes, of course, you can have your work life balance, but then there's a lot of inherent prejudice, there's a lot in the company culture that says, Oh, you know, you want work life balance, well, don't expect to be promoted if you want Mm. to be working in a balanced way. So, employers need to get much clearer on the support they ought to be giving and preferably have some sort of policy, even if it's a short policy statement, that supports that so that people know where they are on that. Um, And the second thing, which is linked to that, is to change those outmoded corporate cultures which say that you can either have a more senior role or you can work flexibly, but you can't do both. Both, yeah. Um, And there's a lot of kind of bits that people butt up against when they're trying to navigate that. And then the third thing, I think, is that um, employers need to get a bit more honest with themselves. And this is going to be a bit controversial, but I did research in the city where I came across quite a few women who very quietly off-ramped themselves which is the American term for you know they took their career sideways they weren't doing anything for a while they either put themselves into back office jobs or they left altogether and went to somewhere where they could work perhaps in a less challenging role that required less of their skills but offered them more flexibility and what I saw was that the employer response to this typically is oh but that's the woman's choice she chose to do that this within we were talking about a culture where if you ask you've already had your card marked if you ask the chances are going to be no or it's difficult or yes you can have flexibility but you must be demoted or whatever so I think again I was talking earlier about HR being strategic and HR getting under the radar and I think it's about HR really asking those women the women who are not putting themselves forward for promotion the women who are leaving to go to ostensibly other jobs or take a break for childcare reasons genuinely is this all it is or what could we do better as an organization to make use of your skills during that period where you need that greater flexibility and and really as I say I think in employers just turn a blind eye to a lot of that at the moment and I find that very frustrating
0: yeah and and it's I I mean I don't want to make it all about women but certainly I think back to when I've employed um women returning from whether it was young kids and let's say they were working four days a week and or leaving it for had slightly shortened hours um and they were almost, they were so grateful to have that flexibility and carry on their career. And they were some really productive people that they really gave it their all. You don't come across people who are much more focused than somebody who's got to go and get to nursery for six o'clock hard stop. You know, they're really focused on getting things done and were highly productive. So it's a shame to that you know, that old if that if we go, if we're returning to that old school thinking, I think it's a real shame, culturally, and organisations will miss out on talent.
1: Well, absolutely. Um, And and it is a shame because, as you say, um, so many women then want to come back to work and so many women – and again, uh, one of the things that I say in my book is – and. misunderstand me on this i think the internet is a wonderful thing i think women start starting up their own businesses is a wonderful thing but not every woman is going to be successful or have the right skills to run her own business and we're, we're hemorrhaging talent from the uh, the corporate world because women are tempted into what the what they now call mumpreneurs, in, tempted yeah. into setting up their own small business, and then after a few years they realise that actually they would be better off in that bigger structure of um, a corporate environment, and they could probably contribute more of their skills to that as well. And when you just look at the number of women who subscribe to Women Returner programmes or are interested in joining them, um, I think that's evidence for that. And and it is a shame because we still need to do so much to support women in particular, but really all employees at those periods in their lives when they do need to find a different balance between the work and the um, outside responsibilities.
0: Yeah, and I'm and I'm really glad you looped it back there because I was thinking um, something that probably wouldn't have happened so much 10, 15 years ago, although, fairness, uh, my husband did become a house husband for a period of time. And, um, you know, so that, but that was relatively unusual. I've got a good friend that I, I play sport with and she and her husband both work four days a week. So they share it. And, and I think this whole flexible working thing it should be about supporting partnership shouldn't it and seeing actually you know that you know it's not just a female thing because if if we can work in partnership then everybody as in enable an husband and wife teams or whatever they uh, the, the team bringing up children together, help them to operate in partnership rather than that sort of stereotypical one that it's the woman that's got to take the flexibility. If it's acceptable for um, men to also, fathers to also do that, then it will actually help us overall the workforce um, because women don't have to compromise quite so much themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's all sorts of evidence about the benefits to families of fathers being more involved, particularly in the early years. But sadly, um, as we know, even there with things like shared parental leave, the uptake is very low because, again, you know, it comes back to this corporate culture thing. Yeah. Women are still expected to be the ones that will be primary carers um, and men are still expected to focus on their careers more than on anything else. And that's changing gradually, but it's taking quite a while for organisations to really embed Differences in that culture. Uh, So, again, you know, going back to HR being strategic about this, we need to think about this as a big corporate culture piece about how everybody works and what the benefits are of doing that. Yes, and I think maybe that would mean that if you've got senior
0: people, whatever sex, particularly the males, actually, are you taking paternity leave? Are you taking flexible working in order mm-hmm. to do it? So, actually, making sure it's not all about them, it's actually about the whole culture. Because role modeling at a senior level would be really probably more pa- more powerful, you know, a male um, CEO or yeah, director modeling, taking, you know, utilizing their, their leave yeah. and working flexibly than than other things. All of these,
1: are, they send a signal, don't they, about the culture? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you raised that, Lucinda, because, again, I'm a a great believer in role models. And this is one of the things that, by going under the radar, you can often tease out in your own organisation, is there are people who are doing it, and particularly men who are doing it. But, of course, there's the the, the stories about how a, a woman will say, I need to leave early today because I've got to pick my child up from nursery or it's sports day or whatever. Whereas most men will say... Oh, I've got a meeting in the city I need to be at. So, you know, they'll leave early and they'll give a different reason. So, they're there. and it's accepted because they're a man and nobody would question it anyway. So, actually encouraging people to say, I'm in a more senior position, but I'm working more flexibly. And I remember many years ago when I was first starting this work, I wrote a number of case studies for a, for a website that no longer exists. And one of them was the CEO, I believe, I can't remember, I think it was a charity, but I can't remember, but it was a male CEO, but he was a grandfather. And he was now taking the opportunity that the culture hadn't allowed him to take with his own children to spend more time with his grandchildren. And he was completely open about it. And of course, it completely changed the cultural approach within the rest of the organisation. If the CEO can be that open about it and do that, then it gives us all more freedom to do it as well. Fantastic. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there, haven't we? So different types
0: of of, um, flexible working, you know, whether it's hybrid or other kinds of flexibility, four days a week we've touched on. But I think most powerfully, we've talked about employers and HR being strategic and this role modelling this being open minded about things, this ensuring that the line managers know how to manage on outputs and just thinking about this as as a culture change um a, a fresh way of, of of looking at the whole sort of psychological contract then i think that's that's very much where we've ended up isn't it in terms of these things and it's it's something that's not just female it's actually whole organization but hr are very much at uh, the key i think to enabling it by as you said go under the radar really understanding what's going on and making some of these things a little bit more visible where there's great role modeling or changing it where it's less so good
1: Anna, if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, um, they can either reach me through my website, which is sustainableworking.co.uk, or connect with me on LinkedIn, because I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, And yes, I'd like to hear from anyone who might be interested in this area or in moving this agenda forward. Brilliant. And I'll put all the links in the show notes and also your book's called
0: Upcycle Your Job, isn't it? So those seem that's much available right, yes. yeah, on Amazon or yes. all, all good bookshops type thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant.
0: Lovely. Thank you so much for joining me on the HR Uprising podcast.
1: Thank you, Lucinda.
0: I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to
1: The HR Uprising podcast.